Hello and thank you for tuning in to 442 FM. Today we are talking more Socceroos, a bit of Russia and FIFA with Kevin Ayers, a regular, and Benita Mercedes. We got the spe- we got the pronunciation pretty good. Close, close. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, good to have you on board. Lovely Lisa. to be here. Thank you. Uh, and of course, you have a new role these days as publisher of Fair Play. Yes, which is uh, a new book publisher for Australian football. It is. I, I sort of looked at um, there's there's so many good football stories around, um, and I'm talking obviously longer form stories, um, and. There wasn't really any... It, I, I know it's very hard for a lot of people to get their stories published, and I thought, well, OK, why not start up a publishing company for really good football books? And one of the first things that I was very keen to do was actually to go to Andrew Howe, who's the expert, and ask him to do an encyclopedia of Socceroos. Mm. It's amazing that nobody's ever actually done this before, but... It's been long overdue, and what a fantastic effort it is too. Yeah, I mean, he's done such a great job. Actually, it's funny you should mention that, because my husband said to me when he saw it, why didn't you do this when you were at FFA? (laughs) (laughs) And I pointed out that FFA wouldn't ever take a risk on things like that. But, um, yeah, I think that's true, and and it's a good time for it to happen. We're at our fourth consecutive World Cup. In four years' time, um, you know, it'll be 100 years since the Socceroos played their first match. And it's also right, right recognition of Andrew's work. I mean, he's been doing this basically voluntarily for 25 years. Um, and just to have the motivation and the wherewithal to think, as he did as a university student, I've got to, I've got to start gathering stats. You know? <laughs> so it's just a wonderful... That backstory is, 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 is wonderful, as are the 592 people who are, who are profiled in here. 592 guaranteed sales as well. <laughs> you'd, you'd think so, yes. And in fact, I am pleased to say, um, and uh, if Trent Sainsbury over in Turkey is listening to this, that uh, Trent Sainsbury and Alyssa Arnold family have already purchased two, um, <laughs> and as has the Farina family, so that's good. Excellent. We're underway, so we might actually make 600. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what's, what is the plan in terms of kind of longevity to it? Is it something that can get updated on a, what, four-year cycle, maybe? That's that's what we're looking at doing, is updating it on a four-year cycle. Um, Particularly, we're very conscious of uh, 2022 um, Mm. being uh, not only another World Cup, um, but also it's, as I mentioned earlier, 100 years since the Socceroos played their first day international. Mm. So that's what we're planning, is to have basically a four-year update. Um, we'll obviously see how that goes. There is the issue too, which a couple of people have raised with us about having an electronic version. It's a very difficult type of publication. You almost spoil it by having an electronic publication, mm-hmm. but we are looking at that. It would probably derail the print sales, that's pretty much for sure. B- besides that as well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think it translates into an audio book very well either. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, although it would be it'd be good, you know, you could give it to all, all of the um, partners of the Socceroos and they could read about Dad at mm. bedtime or something. That's true. <laughs> or we could just get the whole thing just recited by Rally Razic, which would be interesting. <laughs> I'm sure he'd do that. <laughs> sure he would too. <laughs> um, so 
The unfortunate thing about that is hopefully it's going to be slightly out of date uh, by this time next month and we might see Daniel Arzani in the uh, in the Socceroos as well. It, it, is that something that concerns you, that you know, it, it, it's something you're just never going to be able to keep up to date? Yeah, basically, and that's why we're bringing out as a digital version a World Cup edition, which is All basically right. the 26 men who are in, in the long list um, with a few World Cup rec- Australian World Cup records and things like that. So that's actually going to be out from later this week. Mm. Um, and that's digital only. Uh, we're not bothering going to print with that. Um, we had to find, as you would appreciate, you're in the publishing business, we had to find a time where we cut off the data from Andrew's perspective because mm-hmm. um, then, as you can see, it would took a long time in design. Um, yep. Then it has to go to print. Um, so we just cut it off at the end of last year, knowing that there was always going to be a chance that we would miss some people. Sure. The uh, the design is actually a key element. I think of it. It's beautiful. It's a, as, as encyclopedias go. It's a beautiful piece of uh, a textbook history to have. Who did you design for you? Uh, a gentleman by the name of Leslie Priestley, who is from Liverpool in England. Uh, oh, right. He's a mad Liverpool fan, as they all are, and he's off to Kiev this weekend. Oh, yeah, nice, so. yes. He's made a fantastic job off it. He has done a wonderful job, yes. And Gatti as well, Ray Gatt? Yep, Ray, Ray um, provided the four feature articles on the four World Cup captains and we presume Mila Yedinak will still be the captain for 2018. Um, there's some great stories and some great anecdotes in there. I particularly love the one of Peter Wilson. Um, you know, I think for many people who read this, they were probably not even alive in 1974 so I don't really know much about Peter Wilson uh, unfortunately sort of I was alive in 1974 <laughs> and remember Peter Wilson um, but was just a youngster and it's it's great to you know Ray sort of has living memory of all of these people and has met all of these people and yeah. so he was the perfect person to write those stories. Yeah there was just nobody else you really could have turned to for, no. those, for that, mm. that depth of knowledge and experience we've also um, we've got a feature going in the next issue that we've got coming up which includes uh, an anecdote from Jack Riley which involves a steel marble but I won't go into that just oh, okay. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it this way, it raised my eyebrows when I read it but uh, yes and quite painful by the sounds of things. Um, um, so c- kind of keeping on, on the Socceroos, keen to get your opinion on the on the squad really. Mm-hmm. Any, a- any players that stand out that are kind of a, a conversation starter um, in that squad? Oh, well, I, I'm having been a Socceroos team manager. I'm sort of always respectful of any any um, player who makes it to a, an elite level like that, whether it be Socceroos, Matildas, or whatever. I, I think from an A League perspective, it was great to see Daniel Azani there. Um, uh, he did light up the A League for a lot of the second part of the season, in particular, and you know, even from the perspective of the fact that he could play for Iran, um, I. Uh, have been around long enough and known what those tugs of war have been like in mm. the past to think it would be great to have him capped. Um, I think it's interesting that they've gone to someone like uh, Fran Karacic and to see what you know whether he makes it into the squad. Um, and it's I'm also delighted to see people like Dimi Petrados and Andrew Nabu there. Um, so I think you know the squad. Uh, it was good to see an interview that Andrew Nabu did today also overnight where he wasn't putting out the usual cliches and this is no 
uh, disrespect to any of the players who do put out the cliches, but we all know what they are. Um, and he said quite straight, well, I really want to get there and I'm doing what I can and I know I'm fighting for my place. And he's prepared to say that, whereas mostly they're a little bit more mm. gently, gentler than that. Yeah. From, from a team manager perspective then, how important is this training camp now pre-World Cup? Oh, extraordinarily important. I mean, I think one of the things, you know, it doesn't matter who you talk to, um, whether it be Frank who, Farina, whom I knew well, uh, or Graham Arnold as his assistant at the time, or Ange Postacoglu, you sp- or, or Pim Verbeek or any of them, they'll all say the frustrating thing about managing a national team, coaching a national team, is that you only see them for a certain amount of time. And basically, particularly for Australia, when we have qualifiers, you fly in, fly out. I mean, it's almost like flying fly-out worker. Yeah. Um, so it's vitally important that the investment in time and money and everything is put into this training camp and, and for the team to be able to bond and get to know each other. And it's particularly challenging, um, you know, Bert Van Marwijk, we can all be quite cynical about the role. You know, he's not going to be here much and all of that sort of thing. But nonetheless, um, he's taken on the role and he does need to be able to get to know his players and, and see what sort of makes them makes them tick and those sorts of things as well as see what their strengths etc are Mm. I mean obviously he's a professional and has got a reputation to keep up but Mm. he really does have his work cut out to to try and do anything uh, significant not only with the time that he's got and with the players that he's got but with the group that he's up against do you think he's on a hiding to nothing is that why Arnie (laughs) maybe just sidestepped the World Cup and thought I'll just go for the Asian Cup thanks very much Uh, um, yeah I think with Arnie there was a couple of things I I, I think he genuinely wanted to see the season through with Sydney FC um, and uh, the other thing is, I, I think, with the World Cup squad in particular, um, failure at the World Cup will be seen as, well, you know, you you haven't carried on with what Ange had, the point that Ange had got to us to. And if you've done, you do well at the World Cup, people might well say, well, you've got Ange's squad. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that might have played. Point, actually, that's a very good point. You're yeah. on the hiding to nothing either way, really, aren't you? Yeah, I think that might have played in Arnie's mind. Yeah. Uh, it, but it also gives him, you know, in practical terms, it gives him a break um, and it gives him a free run to think about what he's going to do for the Asian Cup. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, what Arnie's achieved, do you think he was the automatic choice uh, for the Socceroos? I think if we were going to go for an Australian coach, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, er- everyone said it. Um, he has done wonders. He did wonders with Central Coast Mariners. He did very well with Sydney FC. I mean, not, not in the first season, but he picked them up and was able to move his squad around and do what he wanted with in terms of his player selection. Um, so he obviously has the runs on the board in terms of getting the results that people want. Um, and, you know, if in, from a national team perspective and when we're defending the Asian Cup away from home... Um, it's you know, he's proven in that respect. It is an interesting tradition that we're now developing of shedding our national team manager just before we the World <laughs> Cup and bringing in a Dutchman. Yeah, <laughs> happened well, to Frank. It did happen to Frank. That's right. And then, then of course, well, Pim Verbeek made it to the World Cup. Of course, he would just Unscathed. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was Dutch to begin with. Uh, well, <laughs> he had that's the right. And, and of course, he was turned over at the World Cup because they found Osijek while they were there in <laughs> 2010. Yes. So. 
yeah. So were you, were you involved um, with the national team when uh, Arnie was there the first time? With, when he was assistant to Frank. So, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in, and it was a very different environment then. There was no budget whatsoever. Yeah. Um, you know, people, I always tell the story, I... I I still have a spread. I still have the spreadsheet of the player payments and what they're owed. And I can tell you that the the Vadukas, the Skokos, the Teatos of this world um, are owed money. And part of the still, yeah, I'm <laughs> part of, part of the. But they uh, part of what they, I guess, gave to the game, in a sense, was they they wiped all that. They just wiped it. It's just that, so, you know that yeah. was the past, and we're now in a different era, and so it didn't matter to them. Um, and it's a very different, probably, attitude from what some of the players would have today. Yeah. But it's also a different environment. And I, I think, you know, when you look at what the continuum of the game is, that's where we've come from and that's where we're at now and that's, how, that's the way it should be. It has been quite a remarkable sea change in the way the, the, uh, the game has operated in this country over the last, well, 20 years. Um, I mean, over a lot longer than that, but uh, you can see clearly in the last 20 years the difference. Um, how far away do you think we are from being in a good place with the game here? I think we're improving all the time. I mean, uh, as you said, you can see what progress we've made. Um, and, you know, you've only got to look back at, um, for instance, in 2003, 2000, 2003 when Frank Lowy came in as chairman, the turnover of the of Soccer Australia at the time was $10 million. Um, today, even in a not-so-good year when the revenue might not be as great, um, it's around about $100 million. In a year like this year where you've got World Cup money coming in and FIFA money coming in will be even more. Yeah. So, I mean, that in itself is a one metric, <laughs> to yeah. quote David Gallup. Um, are there things that need addressing? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm a great... Uh, um, proponent of a national second division. I think eventually we do need promotion and relegation. We desperately need expansion of the A-League to make it more interesting. Yep. And I think there is a major issue with um, development, with elite player development and also participation because participation is very patchy now. And that's not just an issue for football. It's an issue for Australia in terms of children playing sport. Do you mean in terms of the, the drop-off from children to uh, teenagers? Yeah, that's always been the case. There's always been that drop-off. And years and years ago, I actually did some research um, which showed, and it wasn't rocket science research, but it was evidence-based research which showed why that happened. And it's a typical thing, you know, 13, 14-year-olds, they get interested in other things in life. Yeah. Um, so that's always been there. It's always been a challenge. I think it's more that if you look at the participation patterns um, from, say, 95, 96 to the current day... Um, there are more young children of a lower socioeconomic background who are not playing um, because of the cost of playing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, therefore, they don't get the access to it. And you think about it, if you're a mum and dad and you work, say, you know, in this part of Sydney or in Sydney and you live out in the western suburbs or something like that, just the day-to-day -day grind of getting into work and going home... Um, takes a lot of time, let alone taking children to training after school and those sorts of things. So, as I said, that's not... I, I only care about football participation, but it's actually a more broad... It's a broader issue for, for Australian sporting participation mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it's a social one as well. Mm. Yes, it is a social one. And particularly when you look at some of our past great players, um, they have all come from areas where, you know, they... 
they realize they they were elite players and they were talented players and they've come from backgrounds where perhaps um, they wouldn't have gone on to education or other things now anyway. Whereas our our enormous participation is happening in the higher socioeconomic areas and they tend to go on and do other things other than become professional sports people. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. You've uh, been in football, obviously, for a long time, and along the way paid quite a high price for your, your love of the game. Um, how do you look back on the way that things have gone for you in terms of football? Um, fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine about it. I mean, if in relation to all the FIFA stuff and the World Cup bidding stuff, if that's what you're referring to... As I say at the very end of my book, you know, I accept that I've paid the price of being someone who's who's talked out, uh, uh, talk, you know, talked out about issues, and and that's what happens not just in sport but in life. Mm. Um, and so I I don't regret that because I I know that anything I ever said was truthful, um, and has proven to be truthful. Um, so I don't have any regrets about that. Does it mean that my life changed on, you know, the day that uh, I was sacked? Of course it did, because we all have mortgages and children and, a lot, you know, things that we think we're going to do in our life and those things don't, don't happen or can't happen. Um, but I've, you know, contributing to football in other ways. I continue to volunteer uh, in football. I've um, set up this publishing business because I want to tell really good football books and when I talked about it in the family and said I'd like to do this so they said oh you're not going to lose money are you and I said try just so long as I just so long as we you know break even we'll be fine um and you know I have a, a football um website which is um you know a little bit sort of probably left of centre. It's not one that I think the football authorities like that much. <laughs> and in fact, one... Independent thinking, generally speaking, doesn't go down particularly well with the FFA. Yeah, well, but <laughs> even um, a state federate or a member federation president, um, a particular president of a club, was telling me that um, a state federation president was coming along to one of the events for Andrew's book to hear from Andrew because he's doing these fantastic presentations about it but he was only coming along because he had a bone to pick with me (laughs) Uh, so I was thinking I might not go (laughs) but no that won't worry me look forward to seeing you because you know who you are (laughs) so the book um, that you mentioned then was the the one that you authored whatever it takes the inside story of the hashtag FIFA way Um, so when when was this written when I was, look, I started it soon after I was sacked from FFA. and um, 2010? 2010, yeah. And that was on the advice of Andrew Jennings, the British investigative journalist. He mm. said, you know, write it all down because over time you will forget it and you, you don't know what you don't know at the moment. And I did that. I then um, published some extracts in 2012 and got a number of things happened, but that's when sort of the threats started to happen and I got a legal threat and all of that sort of thing. Mm. To cut a long story short, um, a number of things happened over the course of 2015 and 2016, which made me think I've got to pull that book out, I've got to find out something or other else and I've got to tell the story. Um, So that's what I did. So, you know, technically it was finished towards the end of last year. So, so the uh, one big part, which well, I'm not sure how, how kind of big it is, but um, uh, one uh, part of the the bidding process that you were involved with, which was mainly the 2022 World Cup, but also the 2018. Obviously, we're kind of on the on the cusp of the t- the Russia World Cup now. Um, like, w- what kind of insight have you got into how Russia ended up with with that? 
Well, I Very broad question. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. It's a, it's a really relevant question. I actually think Russia are lucky that Qatar won. I was going to say, I mean, all the focus was on Qatar. Yeah. And Russia was just like, let's focus on Qatar. Yeah. Uh, and they got away almost scot-free with that. Exactly. And, you know, Russia won in two rounds of voting. Qatar took four rounds of voting. So there was a greater competition there. Uh, and there is no doubt, when you look at the FIFA way and what that entails and the sorts of things that I write about in there. I mean, Russia was right in there. You know, a country that, uh, you know, look at what they did in relation to doping. Do you think they weren't going to win the World Cup? Yeah. I mean, they were always going to win that 2018 well, I mean, With the benefit of hindsight in the context of the doping and of the US elections and the use of social media and everything else to, to sway elections in people's minds, it's just it's a no-brainer that, you know, they would have been doing everything they possibly can, uh, darkly and uh, in... Covertly and overtly. That's, the one, that's <laughs> what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. uh, but as as everyone says, you know, nobody paid any attention to it really at the time. No, and the the joke is in relation to the Garcia report is when they you know they trotted off to Russia and they said, oh sorry, we can't help you because we've we were leasing our computers and they've thrown them out. And as I've said it, it before to someone else, you know, this is a country that put a dog in the moon in 1959, yet they don't know about backing up their computers. I mean, it just beggars belief. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, the Garcia report said, oh well, we couldn't do anything about it. So therefore, they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. But as any uh, medical practitioner will tell you, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So that's <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, from from that the Russia um, win on this, it felt like the English FA took the biggest offence to uh, the kind of corruption charges, and um, I, I, I'm. I, I'm kind of struggling to remember exactly how it, how it went down at the time, going back a few years now. But what is um, so? Was it kind of bit, were England a bit of a favourite for, for this tournament, and then they didn't get it? Yeah, they certainly. I, I there were two bidders always who, if you asked them to post the World Cup tomorrow, they could do it, and mm. that was England and the US. Yeah. They just absolutely had the capacity. Russia also had the wherewithal. I mean, they have hosted Olympics just as we have, but they needed to build facilities and that sort of thing as well. So I think um, England was a favourite, having bid a number of times before. Um, It's certainly probably a fan favourite. All the research that I was privy to was showing that for 2018, people wanted to be in England. Mm. Um, And I I think they also... They they took... um, I think their politicians took more notice. I mean, as you would know, mm. football's so much more part of the mm. fabric of society. You know, there's a whole culture, media and sport committee of the House of Commons, which is chaired by someone I've come to know very well, Damien Collins. Um, and, you know, they, they are always inquiring into football. And, in fact, it's partly their initial inquiries into the whole bidding process which has opened up some of these issues. Mm. So in the wake of uh, the scandals and the... What happened to yourself? You got involved with the new FIFA, is that right? With yes. um, the book from Under Armour? Uh, no, Skins. Skins. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate insult. <so. laughs> Ultimate confusion. Um, yes. A- and Damien Collins. And Damien. Yeah. How, how has that progressed? Um, look, it's, pro- it's progressed well. I mean, we started that at the end of 2014 after the Eckert summary report 
came out and um, yeah, it was sort of obvious that it was just something really dodgy going on with FIFA, surprise. Um, and uh, you know, since then, we before the May arrests, before anyone knew about the May arrests, we put a lot of pressure on FIFA, a lot of pressure on their sponsors to do something about what we saw as being um, rampant corruption, dodgy deals and that sort of thing. And what the May arrest did was just basically prove that we were right. Mm. Um, I think what we've got now with FIFA is a, a more acceptable face of the organisation in Gianni Infantino, but it is just a changing of deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. I don't think anything's changed that much. Yeah. Um, Fatma Samura, who's a highly credentialed and experienced bureaucrat, has come in as CEO and introduced some process. And, you know, she'll say, you know, the, the dealings we've had with her, she'll say, but we've got a policy and it's published. And that's right. But the fundamental issue with FIFA, and by that I mean World Football Administration, is one of culture. And if you've got an issue of process versus culture, culture is going to win every time. And until FIFA actually recognises that that's an issue for them, and, and until they address it, probably not much is going to change. So, you know, it's like tilting at windmills to some extent, but it's a worthwhile tilting at windmills. And it is change happens slowly in those in these sorts of areas and so we just keep plugging away. I must admit when I first read Andrew Jennings pieces online I dismissed them. I was one of the, the many that thought nah, ramblings of a madman uh, it, it didn't read well it needed to be edited um, but as it turns out everything that he was saying was true and was correct uh, and I and many others were wrong about the whole thing um, did you it, it, that must have been felt like a mountain to try and overcome public perceptions of FIFA being this huge and very very successful institution um, was actually still incredibly corrupt uh, and that people were on the take how, how do you even begin to turn people's perceptions around about that um, I think being consistent and being persistent and having the evidence um, and, you know, it, the evidence doesn't necessarily mean you know that money's transferred from one bank account to another or, or you've got a picture of the brown paper bag, but it, it is about, you know, when you've been in the room with people and they've had conversations and when you have seen emails, even if you can't remember all seven paragraphs of them, um, or when you've had conversations um, or been asked to do things, I mean, that that is a body of evidence that contributes to it. And it does help authorities, whether it be Swiss, the French, the US or the UK, all of whom are looking at these issues, uh, does at least assist them in looking at where they need to look. I mean, Andrew Jennings, um, you know, I, I, I've, I now know him well, but I didn't. Um, and you're right, people would read his things. I remember, you know, we, one of our consultants, Peter Hargitay, absolutely hates him. There are three people he hates, me, Andrew Jennings and Lord Treesman, and it's probably a good trio to be in. But he, you know, Jennings would write something back in those days and we'd get an email from Hargitay overnight saying, look at what this madman's written this time, I'm going to sue him. Well, he's not actually ever sued yet. He tries, but he, do he hasn't done it. But as you said, Andrew Jennings has been right about absolutely everything. And despite, the, despite his very idiosyncratic way of writing and presenting, and um, despite the fact that, uh, as you say, it probably needs editing, um, he's been right, and it's based on documents and based on evidence and based on people he's checked out. Yeah. 
when you were uh, with the FFA as head of comms uh, back in the day, did you were you were aware of Peter Hargitay before he became part of the bid, or were you on the bid and he was brought in and you could see that what he was doing was not really what Australia wanted to be associated with? I had read Fowl um, back in 2006 when it came out and really didn't think anything much about it. At the, uh, I mean, sorry, not about the book, but about Peter Hargitay, who's mentioned in it. Um, when I was told that Peter Hargitay was to be our lead consultant, um, I remember it vividly, and you may remember Ben's old office back in College Street, um, and he had the table at the his his small meeting room table, a, a round table at the entrance, and then his desk was over there, and his bookshelf was to the right, and he walked over to the bookshelf, and Ben's very tall, and up on the top shelf he had Fowl, and he reached up and brought it, and he said, "You need to reread this at least the two chapters about Peter Hargitay," and he must have known there was something that wasn't going to work well with me because he said, "And you're going to have to be really nice to him and get on with him." <laughs> That's really interesting. So he was aware of what he was getting himself into. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes. I, I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt that he was an innocent abroad that had been made aware post the appointment. Uh, and well, I wouldn't say that he was aware of it before the appointment. Right. Um, he probably found that out He's himself be told later. fairly quickly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. I still would have thought that, you know, it would have been somebody like yourself that would have told him, but obviously somebody else got in his ear first. No, I mean, the whole appointments around those consultants, in the international consultants, they were done sort of at executive level, not at management level, if I can put it that yes. way. Yeah, mm. of course. So to, to go back a step, um, uh, what was his role on the... On um, the well, if you asked him, I'm chief strategy advisor <laughs> to this bid. Um, he, he was basically the strategic advi- the strategy advisor, the strategic advisor. He was head of... He looked after international media. Um, Some may say he was a chief holder of brown envelopes, but that would probably be libelous and probably best not said. <laughs> yeah. Um, he he got paid a ridiculous amount of money Uh, he hired another bloke his sidekick to write the bid book on an even more ridiculous amount of money and where that money went to and what happened to it isn't entirely clear is it? Not really no between the three of them that's Andreas Abold, Fedor Radman and Peter Hargitay they ended up getting about 15 million dollars which includes some disbursements it includes for instance the bid book but you know as I as I say in my book and as Andreas Abold said to us not once not twice but at least four times no one reads the bid book and who would because it's 1276 pages you know that wrapped that, in human leather at that uh, place uh, yeah well it was in, in our case it was wrapped in or was going to be wrapped in kangaroo leather which i just thought was terrible <laughs> but anyway um it, you know they and it was clear they didn't read the bid books you know yeah. there might have been yeah. some policy officer in fifa who went through it but that's not how decisions were made. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. that was the tragedy of it. We, Australia would host a fantastic World Cup. Mm. The Asian Cup tells us that. Yeah. Um, but we were never going to be considered on what our merits were because that's not what it was all about. Yeah, I mean, anybody who read a bid book or read the technical reports would never, ever have given Qatar the, the World Cup. No, nor Russia. Yeah. Nor Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, so, you know, it is just purely gut feel possibly backhanders, who knows? Yeah, um, well, as, as, I mean, the story I tell in my book is when uh, a particular, the, the television um, company, Al Jazeera, um, 
made an offer to FIFA of a production contribution um, if the World Cup was held in Qatar in 2022. Now, uh, that has happened in relation to 2026 and two of the big US broadcasters too. So, you know, that, is that a backhander? No, it's a production contribution, a sizable amount. But, One, mean, you know, $100 million plus. And there was, there was overt sponsorship of that type, type as well, because Al Jazeera came in and bailed out the Argentinian Football Federation, I think, as well, with a $75 million deal for their TV rights to their league. Yes, uh, and that's again, part absolutely of no relation to the value, the worth of what that, uh, those TV rights are like. No. That's coming in. You've got um, the Qatar Foundation's sponsorship of Barcelona at a time when Barcelona looked like they might be going out of business. And that was ridiculous amount of money. I mean, it's hiding in plain sight as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and then there's the country-to-country deals as well. So you've got um, you've got uh, uh, France. Um, well, France. Uh, Michel Platini voted for uh, for Qatar and took several votes with him, which Blatter said to me straight out when I met with him last year. Um, but before. Before that happened, and they met with Sarkozy, who was then the president, um, Qatar bought 92, I might have the figures slightly wrong, but 92 Airbus aircraft from France the following year and four from Boeing. Um, and, you know, until that that's just very unusual for a major airliner to do that. They usually will have a bit of a mix between their Airbus and their Boeing aircraft, not 92 to 4 in relation to Russia. You know, there is a, was a Greek media report at the time when uh, Vladimir Putin went to Cyprus, which had a vote, and said, well, I, we, Russia, are going to share our anti-ballistic missile technology with you. By the way, we're bidding for the World Cup and we'd love your vote. I mean, that was all <laughs> in two paragraphs in, in the one media report. So, you know, you can't stop those government-to-government yeah. businesses either you know, or, or transactions because they happen all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It's just hiding in plain sight as far yeah. as that. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. But, but then to go to the um, go back to the, the brown, env- brown envelope, um, there's the famous one with um, Jack Warner, um, which which you were involved with, which was the pearl necklace or the pendant or what, whatever that was. Like, How kind of common and, and open were those kind of arrangements let's, let's say they weren't I wouldn't say they were open and this is why you have consultants there was not one other than the US bid team there was not one bid team that didn't have consultants and mm-hmm. part of that reason is be, so there's plausible deniability for yeah, yeah, the yeah. bidders so you know you get um, for instance um, the FFA chairman at the time would say I, I didn't have a conversation with Jack Warner about that I'm not talking about the pearls here but the yeah, half yeah. a million but and he, he wouldn't have because that's why you had consultants. And that wasn't just Australia, it was Qatar, it yeah, was everyone. everyone. Just yeah. keeping um, everyone at arm's length. Yeah, so in terms of the gifts, I mean, I tell a funny story in my book about when Andreas Abel, the German consultant, was first sort of briefing us on what we needed to do, and he talked about gifts. And I, uh, he said, you know, you've got to give gifts that are um, uh, indicative of your country. And I sort of said, oh, do you mean because he was German. I said, do you mean Beamers and Audis? <laughs> and um, he sort of looked at me and wasn't sure whether I was joking, but Ben did, and he said, you're being naughty, so he wrote on my notebook. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they would give Mont Blanc pens and stuff like that, and it, yeah. they would be focused on what you needed to give as gifts. Um, yeah. 
as if that made a difference. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I remember actually at the time of uh, Nick McKenzie's uh, first stories coming out, we had a bit of a heated conversation, which I was probably in the wrong about, but the point being that if you've got $45 million to spend on a bid, you're not going to be spending $44 million on fires. You, you're going to be spending a substantial amount of money on gifts, buttering people up, big meals and uh, other expenses. Uh, do you, where is that moral line that, that comes with that? I, I think that there's, there's two lines. There's a moral line and there's a criminal line. Uh, and Nick admitted you know, quite happily that we'd never crossed the, the criminal line. But morally... It is. I, th I think that it's quite a wide grey area, isn't it? Yeah, I think that. But I think you've got to take a step back from that and question why do we have to do that in bidding at all? Mm, yeah. I mean, and and yeah. that's the point I try to bring in my book. Why did we need to send birthday presents to the executive committee? And why did we have to take gifts everywhere? It's not as if these people needed these things. Mm. Mm. Um, and it just be it just became quite ridiculous. And that's why I keep using the words bids based on merit and evidence because if it was based on merit you know, we've, we've got a great story to tell we might not be the best amongst the competition but we've got a great story to tell um, and if it was based on the evidence of we've hosted two World Youth Cups we've, we've hosted uh, numerous Commonwealth Games, two Olympics all of that stuff um, we've got evidence to support, uh, not to mention the Asian Cup, we've got evidence to support that but that was the, that was the problem is that it was this expectation um, as I was saying to someone only just the other day, it, they get to the point, the people who have been around FIFA and and World Football Administration for a long time, that if they know the difference between what's right and wrong or what's sort of acceptable and what's not, they think they can get away with not knowing anymore. They just, if, if they actually do know, and I sometimes think with some of them they don't know, but if they do know, they just think it doesn't matter that they're above all that. And they've certainly long ago lost what it is to do something for football. Mm. Um, you know, I told the story earlier in the podcast about you know the, the Vadukas and the Tiados and the Skokos who were owed money. I mean, that, that just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, and the sad thing is that you know a lot of these people who uh, get get to the top in world football, they started off with the right motives um, as volunteers, um, just like so many of us are in football. But they get into the they sort of they put on this blue FIFA jacket and they change they become changed men and women. But to be fair, you know that, I think that applies at a lot of different levels within the game. Though. I mean, you can see you know um, state politics, football politics, and then A League politics. It, it can get murky and it can get political very very quickly. Uh, yes, yes, it can. And look at what we've been seeing over the past two or three years with, you know, the A League versus FFA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Versus the state federations. <laughs> the um, uh, with the gifts. I mean, is that? Do you think it's naive to expect that we can just win on the merits, though, with the way that FIFA was? I mean, m my view always was that, look, FIFA is murky. We knew it was murky when we were going into it. We were going to get dirty uh, just by taking part, uh, just by contacting these people, by being in contact with them. It, was it naive to think that we could win on our merits? Um, I think... Well, it's a, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I didn't ever want to work on the bid for that reason, because you're right. Um, you only have to meet some of these people um, 
for a short time and you realise that this is not going to be something that's won on merit or evidence. And um, you know, you they're want to show very quickly. Y- yeah, as well. and, and it's interesting because a, a, um, someone I know who works in Canberra for the government said to me that when he met our consultants, he he said it's the only people he's ever met that he felt as if he needed exactly that to have a shower afterwards. Um, so I was very reluctant to. I didn't want to be on the bid team whatsoever. Um, so it, it, it certainly wasn't naive. I think that people knew what was needed to win and that was part of the problem, that we were willing to play that game. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, through the work or the advocacy that I've contributed to through New FIFA now, it is about changing that game. Uh, it's about changing the mindset that we have to have bids where you know people get duchessed and run and get go traveling around the world to all these events you don't need to you really don't need to um certainly you need to go and present what your bid's about um at an appropriate time but you don't need to be swanning around egypt as we did at one stage going to um, matches and sitting in a room, this huge cavernous room with hardly anyone in it except Bora Milutinovic, um, who didn't have a vote and who just wanted to be paid to be an ambassador for our bid, you know, and that's that's what it was like. Yeah. Everybody, almost everybody was on the tape. Yeah, yeah. Through, you know, whether it be, and I have a great regard for Milutinovic as a coach, um, but, and I tell the story too of Christian Carambo. Um, I completely missed that he was asking money. I was taken in by his French charm, you know. But, <laughs> um, but he was asking for money as well. And it, it, it's, they all did. Yeah, yeah. just expected it. Yeah. Whose idea was it to launch the bid? Was it all from Frank? Or was it? did somebody get in his ear and put the idea in his head? Well, he would tell the story that he had the idea back in 2006 in Germany. Um, and because he thought, oh, right. yeah, that's I mean, everybody had such yeah. a wonderful time yeah. there. Um, so that's where he had the thought. But of course, within Australia, um, I think it was uh, Griner and Brax at one stage when they were premiers of New South Wales and Victoria, respectively. They sort of thought, yeah, we should we should um, bid for a World Cup too. And you know, it's a legitimate thing to think. It's a it's a good thing for a government to support. Mm. Yeah. Um, if it's done the right way, and this is the issue I think now with the women's 2023 bid, can we be really sure that FIFA's reformed? And although the bidding process might be different, and they can point to, you know, there's a policy document online, that's 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 not what it's about. How is the decision going to be made? Who's making the decision? Um, you know, you need to be really clear about those things. And most importantly, are we going to get a cartoon kangaroo for the Matildas over the Women's World Cup? I hope not. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that was one of the most cringeworthy things I I've ever seen that. in my life. <laughs> I still just don't understand what the thinking was behind that. No, I, I literally was watching at home at that you know like everyone else at two o'clock in the morning watching that presentation and just cried (laughs) it was just terrible hideous Benita thank you so much that's been brilliant it's been really really good that's Uh, a pleasure insight and good luck with the book yep Uh, Encyclopedia of Socceroos available (laughs) bookstores everywhere bookstores Amazon and uh, direct from us fairplaypublishing.com.au excellent thank you Benita thank you Adam Thank you all for listening. Get the latest issue of 442. It's a bumper World Cup special. It's got the magazine, 
It's got a 68-page bonus World Cup guide. It's got a Panini sticker album, a packet of Panini stickers, a trading card, and a sheet of exclusive Socceroo stickers too. Plus, it's got a giant wall chart. World Cup wall chart, which your wall is screaming out for. Uh, Tune in again next week. We'll try and bring another World Cup warm-up podcast before we fly off to Russia, where we hope to try and do one every other day from the Socceroos training camp in Kazan, Uh, speaking to anyone we can get our hands on. Uh, Look forward to it. Thank you again to everyone who came in. Thank you you to you for listening. Speak to you again next time.